It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, June 9th. I'm Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, two Republican congressional incumbents are facing runoffs for their party's nomination. We examine those races and recap the primaries. Then, a look at the Second Amendment as the gun control debate continues in Washington. Plus, it's Pickle Fest weekend at the Ag Museum. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The dust is partially settled following Tuesday's congressional primaries. The four Democratic candidates for the November general election are set. But three of the four Republican races are heading to runoffs, two of which include incumbents seeking re-election. Nathan Schrader is director of the Department of Government and Politics at Millsaps College. He breaks down the races with our Kobe Vance. In my initial takeaways are that we have two very uh, solid, almost uh, invulnerable incumbents in Trent Kelly and Benny Thompson, right? Each of them sailed through their primaries in the first and second congressional districts. I was really interested in the size of the margin of victory for each of them. Uh, neither of those were in doubt. I also think it was fascinating that Betty Thompson uh, seems to have won about by, by a final score of about 96 to 4%. And here's why I was watching that race. The gentleman who was challenging him was actually a Donald Trump supporting MAGA Republican who filed in the Democratic race. And it would, I think it was very intriguing because Betty Thompson happens to be the chairman of the January 6th commission. So I, I didn't think Betty Thompson's victory was in doubt, but I was, go, I was really watching that race carefully to see what his margin of victory would be knowing who, is in, who his opponent was, right? And, and I, so, so the fact that he won that race uh, by 92% uh, really, you know, shored up things for him just in terms of going into these hearings on Thursday. But two of our state's three Republican House members from the, the House delegation heading to a runoff, that is um, a very rare occurrence. So the fact that you have two endangered incumbents, both in the same state, both in the same party, is really that that's what makes this rate these races ones you've got to, we've all got to be watching closely what do you think led to this uh two runoffs that are coming up and, and is this a common occurrence michael guest and stephen palazzo are facing such you know strong headwinds for two different reasons 
let's start with with Palazzo. You know, we're all aware of sort of some of his legal and ethical challenges. I think that just became too much of a distraction for Republican voters on the coast and in the fourth district. Uh, the Republicans in that district that I've spoken to, uh, they were make, they weren't all supporting the same alternative candidate, but they they seem to be very frustrated with their congressman because they sense that his him being in the news for all the wrong reasons was sort of just a distraction from him getting things done for them. So I think that was more of a personal um, opposition to Palazzo in the third district. If Michael Guest. I want to frame it more as an ideological inter-party dispute, right? Michael Guest is, uh, make no mistake about it, a rock rib conservative. He's, uh, I would put him in the, uh, if, for lack of better terminology, given the state of the Republican Party now, he's sort of in the uh, original, sort of out of the original kind of MAGA conservative mold. But if you use the lingo of the Trump movement right now, his opposition in this, who who kind of came out of nowhere, it looked like Mr. Cassidy, is what I think we would what Donald Trump would term ultra MAGA. If you've heard him use that phrase before, uh, these are two guys who I don't think, for the for for lack of a better phrase, there's not really a dime's worth of difference between them when it comes to their conservative. That they're concerned, they are both very conservative and very much Republicans, right? The difference is more at a very, very narrow ideological focus that Michael Guest was just deemed MAGA conservative, but not MAGA conservative enough for some Republicans, uh, a good, sh- a larger share of Republicans than expected in his district. I believe Guest has been criticized for his uh, vote on the January 6th commission, which is actually led by Mississippi Cong- uh, Congressman uh, Benny Thompson, you know. Do you think that was yes? This is absolute heresy within the Republican Party right now. Among maybe not among all the Republican donors out there and insiders, but among the rank and file Republican voters, association with two things: the January sixth Commission or association with not being sufficiently loyal to Donald Trump is the kiss of death in the Republican Party right now. And let me let me defend Mister Guest on one thing. I don't see anywhere in his voting record that he deviates from the conservative line, right? I think um, I've seen some posts on social media saying, in, you know, being criticized or not being conservative enough. It's hard to be more conservative than him on on most issues, right? So he's being attacked again from a very narrow view, a standpoint within the ideological framework of his party. Now, I want to also take a moment to praise Mr. Cassidy. I don't know the man. I've read his bio and his website before the election. But I just think it's important to sort of identify what the movement he put together in a very short so in a very short time, knowing what the incumbent retention rates of 90% plus are. He was out fundraised by a lot. He, he was the underdog by, by far. The fact that Mr. Cassidy, who's kind of an unknown politically here, was able to do that, that's, that, this is just an impressive feat for the fact that anyone could do this against the sitting incumbent who appeared to be safe. That's worth talking about. I think more research needs to be done into what in the heck they did to mobilize and organize on a low budget with a highly unknown candidate against a sitting Republican incumbent in a district like that 
that to me is a, a case study in, you know, in political science of how you challenge an incumbent. It, there's a story to be told there. I don't know what that story is yet, but I'm impressed with the fact that this gentleman and a, what seemed like a small group of supporters, what they managed to put together is very atypical in American politics. Nathan Schrader is a political scientist at Millsaps College in Jackson. Coming up, as the gun control debate continues in Washington, we dissect the Second Amendment. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. Do you drive a vehicle? Then you'll find AutoCorrect helpful, especially on Coach Charlie's Tip of the Week. Listen to our podcast with me, Coach Charlie Melton, on any podcasting platform or on the MPB Public Media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Those 27 words make up the entirety of the Second Amendment. But how the collection of words and clauses has been interpreted over the past 233 years is the question at hand as lawmakers on Capitol Hill seek solutions to gun violence. Matt Steffi is a professor at Mississippi College School of Law. In part one of his conversation with our Michael Guidry, Steffi examines the evolution of how the amendment is interpreted. Throughout almost all of American history until recently, the Second Amendment was not understood to protect an individual right. Instead, it was thought to be a structural feature of the Constitution designed to preserve the state's ability to uh, to have and arm a militia. But the Supreme Court changed that famously in the Heller case and then extended it in a subsequent case to hold that at its core, the Second Amendment, as applied to the states through the 14th, the broad clauses guaranteeing individual liberty to everyone, uh, protects at the least an individual right to own a gun for self-defense, especially in the home, which is the cases the context of those cases arose. At the same time, the majority in the Heller case uh, recognized that while the core right to possess a gun for self-defense was protected by the Second Amendment, we have a long constitutional history of the regulation of gun ownership. So the case law that we have protects a right to, uh, to own uh, a gun, but also recognize the state's right and the Congress's right to regulate that ownership. Now, since then, as we all know from other contexts, the, the Supreme Court has kept marching right. Um, the ability of Congress uh, to pass meaningful gun regulation is in question. 
likewise, the ability of states to preserve, much less expand, meaningful gun regulation is also in question to be hashed out of all places in the federal court. I kind of want to understand the relationship between the language of the Second Amendment and the language of uh, the Constitution. I'm curious, um, because, again, this is an amendment. This is part of the Bill of Rights that was tacked on to the Constitution uh, to be able to get it ratified um, initially. what is the context of the use of the word militia? Where else does it appear in the Constitution that, you know, sure. could inform what this means uh, when we look at it in the Second Amendment? Well, not to be glib, but it really matters far less what the Constitution says as opposed to who gets to decide what the Constitution says. For the the overwhelming majority of American history, the Second Amendment was thought and read and interpreted rather non-controversially to mean that as its core idea was to protect the a state's right to have, have a militia and have it armed, right? In constitutional history, in a nutshell, the Second Amendment, that militia part was read as the loud, important central part And then the second part about the right of the people to bear arms was read in the context of the maintenance of a militia. More recently, it's as if that first part has faded so much that the Supreme Court can't read it. And only the second part is a part of any consequence. And that is odd when one looks at the structure of the rest of the Constitution particularly Article One, uh, that gives Congress almost plenary, almost complete power over state militias, including calling them into federal service, um, including disciplining them, including uh, regulating the training of them. The only two aspects left to the states regarding militia were the appointing of officers and the training of them subject to federal regulation and oversight. But that is where we are. What matters not as as much what the constitutional text says. It is about that the the fact that the current conservative uh, uh, six-member majority on the Supreme Court can decide what it means for us today. With this Supreme Court made up uh, the way it currently is, what are the paths forward for members of Congress that hope to get some type of gun reform passed? Well, and I think those regulations that look more like gun safety laws that of the kind you described, uh, age limits, I think those are safe. Prohibiting criminals from owning firearms, convicted felons particularly, but those convicted of a crime from owning firearms are safe. I think also reasonably safe are uh, 
restrictions on uh, gun possession by people under a, a protective order. Um, regulations about sensitive places. Background checks. But banning a category of weapon, I'm not sure the current court would countenance that. Or, more importantly, for gun safety advocates, banning these high-capacity magazines. Gun safety advocates have made the case that that may be the most important uh, feature. So I think those laws that are focused on age, criminal record, perhaps a mental health record, sensitive places, background checks, are likely to be uh, permitted to continue. I think the more progressive uh, laws are in question. Matt Steffi is a professor at Mississippi College School of Law in Jackson. In part two of our conversation. I think we're going to see continued pressure in the courts by advocates of unlimited gun ownership to push back on these laws on every front. That's tomorrow. Still ahead, it's Pickle Fest weekend at the Ag Museum. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. It started as a pseudo-serious fleeting thought, a pickle festival. But the seed planted in 2019 has grown into one of the Mississippi Ag Museum's most dynamic attractions. In its third year, Pickle Fest aims to be bigger than ever. Museum Marketing and Events Director Justin Nipper shares the evolution of the event with our Michael Guidry. Uh, I always say that, you know, the first Pickle Festival was so much of a success that it was a failure in the sense of we had, it was planned out very well, everything was executed well on our end, but, uh, you know, a lot of the vendors at the time, you know, just honestly just didn't expect it to be as big of a crowd, and so they would maybe go to a local farmer's market or they would go to somewhere else. Um, and so we had fewer vendors for that event. When that crowd came through, I mean, it was a thousand within the first hour, and they sold out of everything within the first hour. You know, um, it was to the point where you know pickles were gone. Like <laughs> any any vendors that had them, they were all sold out. So for 2020, you know, my goal was basically just to make what happened in 2019. Um, and put it to the scale of the turnout that actually happened to just, at a minimum, make sure everybody got a pickle and and, and make things that didn't quite happen in the 2019 make them happen in 2020. I had all that lined out, and then the the world fell apart, you know, and so we had to cancel 2020. 
Um, but luckily, a lot of that planning in 2020 helped us prepare for uh, 2021. The, the crowd that you mentioned in, in 2019 you know, the, and, and how it, they just kind of overwhelmed vendors within those first hours. Uh, what is it about Mississippians and, and pickles? Why is this? Why do you think this resonates so well? You know, <laughs> that is a mystery uh, that I can attempt to articulate. You know, it's like people love um, interesting things, and and I didn't realize this until, you know, I put on the my first Pickle Fest last year. Um, the people come out to play for Pickle Fest. Like, they love it. All of the closet pickle lovers just, you know, come to the surface, you know, and it, go, it touches everything from the athletes to the people that just like to eat weird foods, you know. Um, and that's a lot of what the hopes is. They they come in hoping to see something, you know, new and interesting, and um, it's a family-friendly friendly thing. And being at the museum, you know, one of the staple things that we always do for our events is we always have educational um, an educational element to it. Um, and so we act, it's it's pickling, but it's really uh, you could sum it up better with preserving, you know, and and different ways that we uh, you can ferment and can and um, and just preserve different foods. Um, so we we do touch on that element uh, with the event, um, and so we'll have those demonstrations, educational demonstrations, and things like that that happen. And so I think the people just it's a combination of you know. We have 40 acres here at the museum. You know, uh, there's music, there's games for my kids. You know, mom and dad can learn about how to preserve. And and you know what? There's even some fun contests for those people that really like pickles um, to participate in. And uh, it's just a it's just a fun experience. And I think that is just the perfect uh, recipe for a, a fun evening. Um, for any family, you know, for, for grandma, from grandma to the baby in the stroller, you know, it's just something fun for everybody there. And I think that's why they they flock to it so much. It's Pickle Fest, and the thing that comes to mind, you know, is the dill spear or whole pickled cucumber. But there's a lot more that vendors bring to the table. What are some of the things that you've seen? Um, and these and, and past pickle fests and and as you plan the, the this one this weekend uh, that people will come and see that maybe they didn't expect to see when it comes to you know pickled things. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yes, you know you can you can here's the thing you can pickle just about anything, <laughs> and uh, and that is 100 percent true. You'll see anything from like pickled quail eggs. And we have those even like in our general store. We'll have we have that uh, pickled asparagus, uh, beets, and then the my favorite thing about it is uh, is the variety of you know just even with the pickles, the variety of types of pickles and like ways that people um, actually do the pickling process. Whether it's like a spicy garlic, whether it's got some kind of sweet heat or some kind of um, different flavors that are mixed in. I've seen people do pickle flavored like cotton candy. I've seen pickle flavored candy, um, popcorn, uh, juices, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so it's really one of those things, even mixed drinks. You know, like this year we'll have pickle themed mixed drinks uh, available. Um, pickle beer. 
I mean, really, it's just it's up to the imagination of the of the person um, and how interesting your taste buds are. This event is from three to eight on Saturday, which is a it's a departure, it's a change from from previous uh, pickle fests. Uh, what um, what preempted the this this change in time? Yeah, so you know, last year was was great, and I really don't have any. Uh, there's no complaints. But, you know, it was hot. And so this year, um, changing the time is one of the multiple ways that we have decided to just upgrade what we've already done. It is hot, and it's still going to be hot, but at least it won't be um, at the middle of the day, you know, when the sun's at its highest, which another thing we did for that was is this year we're, uh, we incorporated our um, rental buildings. Those two buildings are going to have vendors in them. Um, as well so those have ac restrooms and so we just really want to help um make sure that people the guests that attend this event will be able to stay cool um and have that chance to cool off um, if they need it this has been mississippi edition on mpb think radio